<coughs> well, good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be here with you this morning. There came to John from beyond the wood a sweetness and a pang, so piercing that instantly he forgot his father's house and his mother and the fear of the landlord and the burden of the rules. All the furniture of his mind was taken away. A moment later he found that he was sobbing and the sun had gone in and what it was that had happened to him he could not quite remember nor whether it had happened in this wood or in another wood when he was a child. It seemed to him that a mist which hung at the far end of the wood had parted for a moment and through the rift he had seen a calm sea and in the sea an island where the smooth turf sloped down unbroken to the bays. But even while he pictured these things, he knew with one part of his mind that they were not like the things that he had seen. No, that what had befallen him was not seeing at all, but he was too young to heed the distinction and too empty now that the unbounded sweetness passed away, not to seize greedily whatever it was that he had left behind. He had no inclination yet to go into the wood and presently he went home with a sad excitement upon him, repeating him to himself a thousand times, I know now what I want. I know now what I want. Now that's a scene from C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress. It's describing a vision that John, the hero of the story, has as a young boy. He sees this island that we just heard about and when he sees it, he knows that that's what he wants and the rest of his book is about John's journey to find that island. John knew in the depth of his being that the island was where he really belonged. It was the homeland that he was looking for and everything in this world was only a shadow of the place that was his final destination. Now C.S. Lewis wrote Pilgrim's Regress as an allegory for the life of faith. And the idea of searching for the island represents what Hebrews 11 is about. The author, Hebrews 11, takes us on a journey through Israel's history. The people he describes are the heroes of the faith. The point of this chapter is to show us what their faith and our faith is all about. It's being confident of what we hope for. Each of these heroes of faith believed and lived for something other than this world because they were confident in the God who would take them there. Hebrews 11 is written as a model of faith an example for us, but it ends off with the truth that we can be even more confident than these Israelites, that we can hope for a better future because we have seen the one who these Old Testament figures longed to see but never did. I got five points this morning, don't groan, I normally have three but today I couldn't keep it down, less than five. 
but they'll be quick, I promise you. Uh, What is faith, number one? Second, we'll look at Abraham. Thirdly, Moses. And then four, the rest of Israel's hall of faith. And then fifthly, how what drove these people on was that they were looking for a better homeland. So that's where we're going. Why don't you join with me in prayer as we start. Father God, thank you that we were reminded uh, by Brett this morning that uh, your word is a double-edged sword that pierces us uh, to the heart. Father, we ask this morning that it would do its work in us, that you would encourage us, challenge us, most of all that you would give us confidence that our faith is grounded in one who is trustworthy. Thank you, Father, that we have a better homeland. We have a better place in store than where we are. Thank you that we have a future. Thank you that we have a hope. We pray this morning that that would become even more real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. To start off, why do we have a whole chapter looking at uh, taking us through the faith of these Old Testament characters? It's helpful to take a step back and look at the picture of where we're going in the book of Hebrews as a whole. The first nine chapters, which we've looked at if you've been with us in previous months, is about Jesus being better than anything else that came before. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than the Old Testament priests. And then chapter 10 is something of a watershed, it's a turning point. Because in chapter 10, the author moves on to application, how we are respond to respond to this truth about Jesus. And the only reasonable way to respond to him is to put our faith in him, to trust him. And the stakes are high. Our future depends on it. If we don't put our faith in Jesus, then we aren't forgiven and we aren't saved from our sin. But in the very last verse of chapter 10, the writer says, that's not our future, for that's not the future of his readers. And friends, I want to say in faith that that's not our future as well. Have a look at verse 39, 10 verse 39. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So it all comes down to faith. Faith in Jesus saves us. And so that's why it's important. That's why this chapter is important. That's why it's important to know what it looks like to have faith. And so we come to chapter 11. Firstly, what is faith? We told what it is in verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith isn't just wishful thinking. Our culture often sees it like that. Our culture often sees faith as kind of a blind leap in the dark, doesn't it? No, faith is confidence in something particular. Actually, it's faith in someone. Have a look in verse 6. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, the object of our faith is God. Our confidence and assurance comes not from our own, uh, our own ability to conjure up uh, faith, but in the fact that God is the one who is trustworthy. He is reliable, he is good, he is loving. When we think about faith, it's a bit like getting on an aeroplane. And here I'm going to pick uh, on Hamish Clark, because I know he's not here. Hamish is... Sorry, Rachel, you can <laughs> apologise to Hamish later. But Hamish flies big aeroplanes, big commercial planes. But imagine that one day Hamish felt a desire to get in a little propeller-driven uh, Cessna and fly to Europe. A little plane that's designed to go maybe a couple of hundred uh, kilometres before it has to refuel. Just imagine, he says to Rachel, I really believe I can do this. I have this inner peace about being able to fly this plane to Europe. But then what happens is that maybe a few hundred k's out to sea, Hamish runs out of fuel and he crashes into the drink. Because Hamish's propeller plane wasn't up to the job, it didn't matter how much he trusted in it, he couldn't rely on it. His faith was useless. But picture a different scenario. I'm going to pick on Dorette here. <laughs> I love picking on Dorette. <laughs> Imagine Dorette decides to go and visit relatives back in Scotland. Dorette is nervous, though, about flying. But she has a ticket to fly to London. Unlike Hamish, she is flying a 747, a big plane that's purpose-built to fly long-haul flights. Now, Dorette nervously gets on the plane and doesn't even open her eyes for the first couple of hours. But, of course, she gets there, in the end, safely to London. Even though she was nervous and barely had enough faith to get on the plane, she did, and it got her there. You see, what matters in faith isn't how much faith I have, but it's what I trust in. If we trust in God, we can be confident, because He is reliable, He is trustworthy. Well, the author goes on to show examples from Israel's history of how God's people lived out their faith. They all showed a confidence in a future that they couldn't see because they were confident in God. Firstly, Abraham. Story of Ab or the story actually begins before Abraham uh, uh, in Genesis 4 with Abel and then Enoch and then Noah. But we're going to focus on Abraham. The author picks up on things that God asked Abraham to do. Things that would have seemed uncertain, illogical or even downright stupid or wrong. It started with God calling Abraham to leave his family, his people, his home and to just go. God doesn't even tell Abraham 
where he's going. Let's pick it up in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He and his wife Sarah, when she was 90 years old, were asked to believe in God that he was going to give them a child. Verse 11, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. They trusted in God. They did trust in God and God came through for them and gave them a son, Isaac. And then God promised that through Isaac, he would fulfil promises that he made to Abraham. Promises that you've no doubt heard to make him a great nation to give him descendants that couldn't be counted and through him that all people of the earth would be blessed. But then God drops a clangor on Abraham. God tells him to kill his son Isaac as a sacrifice, verses 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, if you know the story, you know that uh, God actually ended, stopped Abraham from making that sacrifice. He provided a sheep to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. But Abraham was willing to go through with it. I can't imagine something that would have made less sense to Abraham. Killing his son after God had promised all, that all his plans were going to come to fruition through Isaac. And yet he was confident that God could be trusted. Now the author gives a lot of airtime, you'll notice in this chapter, to Abraham. He's not only a great example of faith in Romans, Paul talks about that, that he is also the father of everyone who is saved by faith. But more than that, he is really the foundation of, every, of, of God's whole mission to save people from all nations. And I'm no doubt we'll hear more from Ed about that uh, at church camp. Through Abraham, all people on earth would be blessed. And in the New Testament, we see how that plan is fulfilled in Jesus as people from every tribe and nation are saved by believing in him. Well, the story keeps going. And the next major figure after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and then Joseph, people we know as the patriarchs, the next major figure is Moses. If Abraham is the is foundation of God's people, of the story of God's people in the Old Testament, then Moses is the cornerstone. He is the one who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He is the one who received the law from God at Mount Sinai. He is the one who brings them right to the edge 
of the promised land, though he himself couldn't go in. And what the author focuses on with Moses is that he wasn't held back by fear. Firstly, it wasn't Moses but his parents who had faith not, uh, to, uh, to not be afraid to trust God. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Pharaoh's edict was that all Jewish boys were to be killed. And that's why Moses' parents hid him in the Nile. When Moses grew up, he obeyed God and confronted Pharaoh. He demanded that his people would be let go, freed to leave Egypt. And as we know in the story, after God performed many signs against Egypt, Pharaoh eventually let the Israelites go. But it took a great deal of courage and boldness on Moses' part to oppose Pharaoh and lead the people. Verse 27, by faith he led Egypt, left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Walking in faith often takes courage, not only for Moses but for us too. For you it might be standing up to your boss. Maybe he or she wants you to endorse something that goes against your beliefs. Maybe you're being asked to promote a stance on marriage or abortion that as a Christian you just can't agree to. To say no to your boss might even jeopardise your, your job or, or your chances of promotion. But having faith in God means trusting him to look after you even though the outcome is uncertain. Or perhaps walking in faith means for you not being afraid to question your parents when, when they want you to put career first and security first ahead of serving God. Perhaps you're even thinking of missionary work, but your parents don't want you to do it. So Moses wasn't afraid to obey God rather than Pharaoh. His faith in God gave him a confidence. He knew that there was something better in store for him. We skipped over this bit, um, but for both Abraham and Moses, they were looking forward to something better beyond this world. A homeland that was really where they belonged. Uh, this is a really important point and we'll come back to that uh, at, as our last point. But then firstly, the writer takes us further into Israel's story. The pace quickens and we are given a great list of heroes who walked in faith. They were Israel's hall of faith from verse 29 onwards. But if you look at the list, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, you'll notice in verse 39, 31 that the list begins with a surprising figure. Verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed 
with those who were disobedient. Rahab, the prostitute, belonged to one of Jesus, not Jesus, one of uh, Israel's enemies. She lived in the city of Jericho. The writer has just told us in the previous verses how the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites marched around them for seven days. And then the story is that Israel conquered Jericho as part of their acquisition of the promised land. But Rahab welcomed two Israelite spies and hid hid them from Jericho's leaders when they came to do a reconnaissance of the city. It's wonderfully significant that Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, is included in Israel's hall of faith. It's a little hint, a little teaser for how God's mission to save the world was going to play out. It's saying that it's not about being an Israelite. It's not about being born a Jew. Remember that we heard earlier that all people on the earth were going to be blessed through Abraham. God's plan to bring people from every tribe and every nation on earth into a new Israel. And Rahab was one of the first of those, like a down payment of the picture of things to come. Second thing about Rahab, we know now, of course, that she did the right thing. She did the smart thing and she ended up saving herself and her family when the Israelites conquered Jericho. But at the time, it wouldn't have seemed so obvious. You see, Jericho was considered pretty much impregnable. No enemy was going to break through those massive walls of the city. The logical thing for Rahab to do when these spies came would have been to turn them over to the authorities. Then she would have been hailed as a patriot and a hero who saved the city. On all the available evidence, what Rahab did didn't make sense from a human point of view. But she acted in faith. And it's not just Rahab. The author drives the point home that all these heroes of the faith did stuff in faith that didn't seem to make sense. We've already heard the story of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Noah was asked to build a huge boat in the middle of dry land with all his neighbours scoffing at him and laughing at him. Moses confronting Pharaoh, the leader of a bunch of slaves, demanding from the most powerful, um, powerful man in the world to free them. The Israelites walking into the Red Sea, being told that God was going to deliver them with 
Pharaoh's army now chasing them and about to catch up with them. None of this stuff would have made sense from a human point of view. The author wants us to see that the life of faith is often like that. God calls us to do things that from our own perspective just may not make sense. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Karate Kid. Uh, It's an oldie but a classic. Um, The story is Mr Miyagi is a karate master and his young student Daniel comes to him, well he asks, he begs him to to take him on uh, as a student to learn karate. So to Daniel's joy, Miyagi agrees to take him on. Lesson one, as Daniel fronts up, all excited to learn all these karate moves, to wax and polish Miyagi's car. Daniel can't believe it. This makes absolutely no sense. Miyagi shows him how to do it. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Ah, as you've seen the movie, and see you all doing it with me. Lesson two, polishing Miyagi's car. And then the next one, wax on, wax off. Till Daniel is frustrated, tired, he feels like his arms are about to drop off. It's not until they actually start doing karate that Daniel finally sees the point of this. He starts automatically using the same... I know nothing about karate, but according to the movie anyway, apparently this is kind of a a karate move. He uses the same reflex movement as wax on, wax off as he starts doing karate. All the time doing something he couldn't understand. But Miyagi had a plan that it was to prepare him for what he needed in the future. And so for us too. So often the things that God asks us to do or the things that God brings us our way, they just don't seem to make sense. A dying parent... Prolonged illness, mental health issues, things that might take us or or a loved one out of action in the prime of life, take us out of ministry, out of being productive to God. It does not make sense. God may never show us why. Why do these things come our way? But through faith we can see that he uses hardship, illness, grief to prepare us, equip us, mould us. Well, after Rahab, the, the writer speeds up the story and he lists off a bunch of names Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel, all heroes of the faith. But if you look carefully at that list of names, each one of these men had some pretty significant flaws. 
even David and Samuel. And Samson, well, it's difficult to find much good about Samson, isn't it? If you know the story in the book of Judges. And yet here his name is in the midst of this list of heroes. And friends, that should be an enormous comfort to us. An enormous encouragement. Because it tells us that what's important isn't who these guys were, isn't how good they are. It's having faith in the God who is perfect. And so for us, it's not a matter of how good a Christian I am, how much you do for God, or even how much faith you have. It's all about having faith in the right person. Trusting in the one who can carry us. Trusting in the one who can make us strong. The one who can forgive us. Final point. What kept all these heroes of Israel's faith going... The thing that they were looking for, like John with his island in the story I began with, was a homeland that they could not see. It was what Abraham was looking for. Have a look back at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's what Moses was waiting for. And the author describes it in very strange language. Look at verse 26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. We'll come back to what that means in a minute. Then the chapter ends with the news that what these Israelites were looking for we have found. Verse 39. These were all commended for their faith and yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We have received what was promised. We have something better and that is Christ. Jesus is the high point of God's promises. The city, the homeland, the city with foundations, in one sense we still wait for that, along with Moses and Abraham, in the new creation, after Jesus returns. But in another way, we've, we, that has already arrived, and it's ours we found our home, and that is Jesus. He is where we belong. In Jesus, we see all of God's promises come together. But let's just go back for a sec to that strange verse about Moses. How did he know about the disgrace of Christ? It makes no sense. Moses was over a thousand years, lived over a thousand years before Jesus. He couldn't possibly have known about Jesus. 
but the author speaks as if Moses knew him. And he does it to make a point. And that is that all these guys, Abraham, Moses, David, they all knew that what they had in their day, that is the land that God gave them, the Old Testament law, the tabernacle and then the temple, they were only shadows. They weren't the final destination. They were signposts pointing to something greater. And that was Jesus. And these guys would have had an idea of that without knowing what the end point was. They knew that forgiveness with God, living with him as their people, inheriting the blessings that they had, that God had to provide a way for that to happen, a way that they could not yet see. And that was Jesus. They knew that God had a plan to bring the nations to him, to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, to bless all people of the earth. But they didn't know how that was all going to work out. So in a sense, they were looking forward to Jesus. That's what the author means by that. But it's an answer that they never received. But we have. The Israelites walked in faith because they knew that God was faithful. They knew that his plan for the world was good and they knew that evil was one day going to be dealt with and judged. But they only had the vague outline of how that was going to happen. But God has put flesh on that for us. The flesh of his broken, bleeding son on the cross. And we can have confidence, so much more confidence than even Moses and Abraham. Because we have seen Jesus die for us. That's how much God loves us. That's how much he is committed to our good. Even when we can't see what he's doing. That's why our names are there, added to the hall of faith. Not because we're good or courageous or heroic, can't say the word, heroic, but because we can be confident that Jesus died for us. We can be assured that he is now with us and that we belong to him as his people. And he will not let go of us. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have a homeland. We have a homeland that in one sense we, uh, has arrived, that we belong to now, that we are experiencing now in Jesus. And Father, there is more yet that awaits us to come. There is more there is a future in the new creation where all things will be made perfect, where all things will be reconciled, where all evil will be dealt with, where there will be no more crying or pain or sickness or death. And it's all because of what Jesus has done at the cross. And we thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that like these heroes of the faith, 
that you would keep us walking step by step by step in the life of faith as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter.